Good morning, everyone. A week ago Friday, a federal court ruled in favor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. They had sought an injunction against the city's restrictions, which banned church services of more than 100 people, indoors or out, which church leaders felt was a violation of their religious exercise rights especially since the mayor allowed and participated in massive anti-racism protests over the summer. And during that same week in New York City, a federal court denied the request of an Orthodox Jewish group and Roman Catholic diocese to block restrictions on gatherings at synagogues and other houses of worships that limited groups to no more than 10 people, not 100, 10 restrictions imposed by Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio in response to a recent increase in the coronavirus cases in certain zip codes. But that injunction was denied. So welcome to our new reality. The current confusion over COVID-19 policies has forced many Christians sort of out of their comfortable armchairs to consider the real life implications of how to be a Christian and a good citizen. In the past, it's been relatively easy to be a Christian and a law-abiding citizen. And when I say it's been easy, I don't mean that our government is perfect. We have passed and upheld laws that give people permission to act in ways that are contrary to the moral teachings of Scripture. We've created and supported systems and practices where everyone was not treated equally and fairly under the rule of law. But now in this COVID world, we're being pushed even a bit beyond our comfort zone, as many Christians are struggling to know how to intentionally live out God's command from Romans 13, 1, where it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Many state governments have put restrictions on public worship and have enforced those restrictions through the threat of civil punishment. What Christians and other religious groups did, you know, with ease only months ago is now being criminalized through laws of the land and, and local churches are suffering just like other small businesses. What are we to do when we're faced with executive orders and legislation that may conflict with our ability to be true to our faith in Christ? Christians are beginning to wonder if we're living in a time that may require us to be faithful to God but at the expense of obeying the law, a time when Christians are examining the subject of civil disobedience. As Christian citizens, it's time to ask, what should Christians do? Do we obey our government authorities or do we disobey? Now, you're probably going to be disappointed with me today because I'm not going to offer an all-inclusive yes or no answer. I mean, I think that's what most people want. Just give me the rule to follow and I'll follow it. But in these circumstances, being true to our faith is a lot more nuanced than that. And my job is not to tell you what to think, but to get you to think. Because the answer to the question is going to depend on you having a biblically informed conscience. A biblically informed conscience so that between you and the Lord, you decide what is the right thing for you to do, a biblically informed conscience. And to do that, we're using this conflict that we've been seeing in Acts chapter 4 between the apostles Peter and John and the Sanhedrin. Remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had been hauled before the Sanhedrin. This is the council of, of 71 judges, which acts as the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. They had healed a lame beggar and had preached to the crowd of onlookers that the beggar was healed by the power of the resurrected Jesus. Now, preaching about Jesus was seen as a threat to the status quo. So they were arrested. They were brought before the high court where Peter goes on the offensive and boldly declares to them one magnificent fact. 
Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The members of the Sanhedrin are befuddled. They're not used to anyone talking back to them. As the ultimate political and civil power in the land, they were used to people just bowing and scraping before them out of fear. So they deliberate with each other on what to do. They see a boldness in Peter and John that kind of rattles their normal, normal shtick. Plus, they can't deny the miracle since everyone saw the lame man hopping and dancing around on two strong legs. This same court had had problems with Jesus because he wasn't intimidated by them either and showed this remarkable poise. And these men had that same bold confidence. So since they couldn't deny what happened, they go into damage control mode. And they threaten Peter and John, warn them never again, never again to speak in the name of Jesus. And that's a line in the sand for Peter and John. It's at that point that they can no longer obey the orders of the legally constituted authority over them as citizens of Israel. The Sanhedrin sets up a fork in the road decision point. Don't talk about Jesus or else. In verse 19, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have, but of what we have seen and heard. The disciples cannot be silent and still be true to their relationship to God. Speaking about Jesus is a core essential of their faith that they cannot compromise on no matter what the court says. And so obeying the court would require them to disobey Jesus, and that they cannot do. So they respectfully, and that's the important thing to note, they respectively, respectfully declined to obey these rulers commanded. The judges bluster and threaten them even more, but they're afraid of the crowds who had witnessed the miracle, so they give the disciples a severe tongue lashing and let them go. Now we're going to see this a repeat of the same scenario in, in chapter 5 where the disciples are rearrested and brought before the Sanhedrin again because they kept on preaching about Jesus. They did what the government told them not to do. And this time the Sanhedrin amps up their threats and has them flogged, has them publicly whipped until their backs were flayed open. That's important to notice too. The disciples paid a big price for their civil disobedience. And that's what this is. It's a clear case of civil disobedience. These apostles were forbidden by the properly constituted authorities to preach in the name of Jesus, and they intentionally chose to disobey that order. And so the question that has to be asked, is it ever right for a Christian to disobey a law because it conflicts with their faith? And the clear answer based on this passage is yes. There are times when it is right when it is actually necessary to disobey properly constituted authority. The government can be wrong. But it's also important to notice that this account, that the civil disobedience occurs here only because the point of conflict rested directly on a clear and unmistakable word from God, which contravened the human law. Jesus had commanded them to preach the good news in his name. The issue is so clear that Peter says, you're going to have to Choose, you're asking us to choose between obeying God or obeying human authority. So you tell us what should we obey? Should we obey God or you? Well, the members of the Sanhedrin can't say, well, of course obey God. So their only alternative is to try and intimidate the apostles through the threat of force. So how do we know 
when we've reached that line in the sand moment like Peter and John. The Bible is very clear that governments are given by God. If we read Romans chapter 13, it begins this way. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Paul says that government authorities are servants of God. And it's important to know that Paul wrote these words while Nero ruled over the Roman Empire. There was never a more perverse, more vile, more evil political leader than Nero. He was the first emperor to institute large-scale persecution against the Christians in Rome, slaughtered them by the thousands. In fact, Paul himself was martyred during the time of Nero. Yet Paul somehow could still write that the governing authorities were instituted by God. So Christians have long wrestled with this paradox that the governments are instituted by God, and yet we are to obey God rather than human authorities when there is a conflict with a clear and unmistakable command or direct word from God. Human law of man, even bad laws, are to be obeyed unless our biblically informed conscience leads us to the point where we believe that the law is forcing us to compromise an essential of our faith. Forcing us to do something that contradicts an essential of our faith. Not something that's inconvenient, but an essential of our faith. When the issue is in doubt, then the law is superior to our conscience. It's only when there is a clear-cut case of conflict between the word and will of God and the word and will of the government that Christian conscience is superior to law. Now here's the thing. Christian citizens have all the legal options available to us as everyone else. Seeking a restraining order, filing a lawsuit, that is not civil disobedience. It's an exercise of our rights as citizens. Peaceful protest is our right as citizens. If there's a law or an executive order that someone feels is contrary to the essentials of their faith, then there are legal options that should and must be pursued first before any type of civil disobedience is even considered. That's the proper way to initially address any concern within the law. Only when those legal avenues have been exhausted should actual civil disobedience be considered as an option. Otherwise, you just come across as petulant, as someone who just wants to draw attention to oneself, as someone who's acting just out of frustration, not because they're obeying the commands of Scripture. Too many Christians are kind of becoming hypersensitive to every little inconvenience as though they, that constitutes an attack on their faith. Wearing or not wearing a mask, that is not a Christian doctrine. Many of these pop-up worship services that we're seeing that defy social distancing ordinances, they're not really bringing glory to Jesus. They only give another black eye to the Christian faith in the eyes of the world because we're seen as selfish and actually medically dangerous. They're just stunts as they flaunt the government. As desperate as people are for close, unmasked, impersonal worship gatherings, that is not what the Bible teaches about how we're supposed to respond. Well, what did Peter and John do? How did they respond? They prayed, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he's quoting from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, they did what Christians ought to do under pressure. First, they went to scripture and they found in Psalm 2 a description of the opposition that they were facing. But then what did they do? These apostles, they didn't go organize a revolutionary committee to overthrow the Sanhedrin. They didn't sponsor a march or a demonstration. They had the popular support. The people were behind them. That's what the high priests were afraid of. But the apostles do not rely for even one minute upon political or popular pressure. They cast themselves on the unique resource of the church in any age. They cast themselves wholly upon the sovereign power of God at work in history, the greatest force to alter a power structure that the world has ever seen. And yet it has been ignored by the church many times in the past. And I gotta tell you, it seems to be being ignored in our day as well. Christians have frittered away their efforts in relatively useless activities, which make a lot of noise, but don't accomplish much. The apostles found encouragement in two things. First, the sovereignty of God and his overruling control of human events. The very first word of their prayer recognizes this. They say, sovereign Lord. The word in Greek is the word from which we get our word despot. They were praying, oh, mighty despot, mighty ruler, mighty tyrant over all. Their faith told them that God holds the world in the palm of his hands and is intimately involved in every human event. They found great consolation in that fact. But it seems many Christians today have kind of forgotten that. The apostles found great encouragement in the fact that this moment of conflict was not somehow beyond divine control. The opposition they were facing was anticipated by God, for no human event gets out of hand as far as God is concerned. He has the power to overrule in any situation, and that is what they counted on. They did not try to arouse a popular uprising because that would have only led to violence. They relied upon a God who works in strange and unusual ways through human events to change them without violence. They relied upon the sovereignty of God and his overruling control of human events. And second, they trusted in what might be called the mystery of history. You can see it in the last sentence of the account. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Do you get that? In other words, the God of history uses the very opposition to accomplish his purposes. That's what they saw, God working through the free will of human beings who were opposed to the gospel. These people were opposed to the plan of God. They tried to thwart God's purposes. 
They tried to derail God's program, but God operates in such a marvelous way that he even uses this opposition to eventually accomplish his will. That is the story of the cross and of the resurrection of Jesus. God used what was meant for evil, and in his grace, he turned it into good for the gospel. That is the overruling power of God. And this is what these Christians relied on. This is the true strength of the church. It is the weapon of faith-filled prayer, tremendous in its possibilities. Resting upon this, these disciples made their request. Verse 29, they said, Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand. Heal. Perform marvelous signs. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Here we are. We're in trouble. We're in danger for our lives, but this is right where we want to be, right in the center of your will, Lord, so do it again. They're asking for more. You know, if modern Christians had been there, I think the prayer would have gone a completely different way. The prayer today would be, God, protect us. God, don't let anything bad happen to us. God, keep us safe and warm and free from any danger. That wasn't their prayer at all. They didn't pray for their own protection at all. The only thing they prayed for was greater boldness. Is that what we're praying for? Is that what Christians are praying for in the U.S.? Is that what you're praying for in these difficult circumstances? Greater boldness? If anything, we need that more than talk about civil disobedience. We should be praying for greater boldness in our faith. Well, God answered that prayer. He shook the place where they were praying, almost like a, like a second Pentecost. God displayed his power, the power that would shake Jerusalem and would eventually shake the Roman world through the message these disciples were proclaiming. Less than 40 years later, after this event, the city of Jerusalem was literally flattened to the ground by the Roman army, totally destroyed. The authority of the priests was broken in that city. The religious theocracy of Israel was destroyed. The people were dispersed throughout the nations of the ancient world, which is God's way of turning evil to accomplish good. It actually enhanced the spread of the gospel as Christians were forced out into the corners of the Roman Empire. Within 200 years, the Roman Empire was shaken to its core. By the 4th century, Christianity had, had penetrated all strata of Roman society and emerged as the state religion of the Roman Empire. I, I don't think that particularly was a triumph, but it shows how the gospel grew. Now, what is all this saying to us in our day? Many are troubled by the power grabs made by our politicians. They see evil intent in them, and perhaps rightly so. They see the government fumbling its way through the COVID crisis. Many governments, local governments, twiddling their thumbs in response to the riots and civil unrest in many cities. Well, what do we do about it? First, remember there is a mighty force, mightier than you can ever dream at work in society, upon which you can rely to enable you to do what these disciples did, to proclaim a message which is the most powerful revolutionary message the world has ever seen the Spirit of God who will enable you to speak of your faith with boldness and love. Yes, we should be conscious of our rights, but our response must always be a response of love for our neighbor and even sacrifice because that's what actually changes hearts. As Peter would later write in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Is this the kind of witness that will shake society to its core? To be effective in our witness, we have to avoid the temptation of becoming hypersensitive to every current political pressure point. It could be that the restrictions on public gatherings as applied to religious assemblies could be those are unconstitutional. Personally, I expect challenges can and should be made within the judicial courts, which is the appropriate place for those challenges to be made. But the unconstitutionality of a law is not the same thing as being an unbiblical law. We are not being prohibited from preaching the gospel. We are not being stopped from reading the Bible. We are not being stopped from praying alone or praying together or serving in Jesus' name. We are not being prohibited from having public gatherings. We're only as restricted in how many can be present in our indoor gatherings and in our church building. Well, Jesus said where two or more are gathered, he's there. So biblically speaking, I don't think we should get stuck on any of the numbers. I'll admit that the limits placed in us right now makes for a personal headache for me and a pastoral heartache for me since we can't gather as a church as we're used to, as we used to, but we still, we're still being the church. And we need to avoid any sensational or misleading narratives that say otherwise. So let's carefully have a heart check. There are times when as Christians, we may need to disobey our governing authorities, but it is only when they require us to be disobedient to God. When the only way we can obey the law is to be unfaithful to Christ. For the Christian, civil disobedience doesn't arise out of patriotic flag waving where we're shaking around the Bill of Rights. It doesn't arise out of anti-government sentiment or our political party leanings left or right. It doesn't arise because we're inconvenienced by some law. It doesn't arise out of some macho sense of being able to stick it to the man. For the Christian, the only motivation for civil disobedience is a deep biblical conviction that obedience to human law would mean disobedience to God. And when such an informed conscience demands such disobedience, we must also be willing to receive the consequences. Acts 5.40 When the Sanhedrin called the apostles, called into the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There are moral outrages that no person of, person of conscience should condone, such as when the Nazis ordered people to turn in Jews for transport to the death camps. That kind of evil requires resistance. There are times of great sacrifice, as in, as in 17th century Japan, when people were required to blaspheme Christ by stomping on a tile that bore his image or face. Uh, in other words, they'd have to face torture and death. There are times of great courage, as with Margaret Wilson and Margaret Lachlan, a 63-year-old woman and an 18-year-old girl who were drowned in the River Bladnoch in Scotland on May 11, 1685, because they would not deny their Protestant faith in Christ. And when I see what Christians are writing and saying about how much they feel they are being targeted and persecuted in our current situation, it makes me sad deep in my heart because we are so spoiled so spoiled and our petty complaining 
cheapens the real sacrifices that Christians have made for their faith over the centuries. When they went to their deaths, persuaded that they had to obey God rather than human law. Let's not be that way. Instead, let's trust in the sovereign power of God to use the current situation for his good. We need to pray for greater boldness in our own faith to love and serve our neighbors as Jesus commanded. And I think we should be extremely thankful for the ease with which we can live as both a Christian and a law-abiding citizen. If the time comes when Christians in the United States must pick up the cross of civil disobedience, friends, it will be heavy. It will be burdensome and it will be painful. And then our lot will be to carry that cross humbly, to carry it well, and to carry it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do live in challenging times, and I pray most of all that we would have confidence and faith that your sovereign hand is at work behind all of the circumstances that we see. And that, Lord, we would pray for greater boldness for our faith, not shrink back, not pray for our own safety and security, Lord, but we would be like the apostles and pray for boldness in this hour to be greater in our witness, greater in our service to our communities, greater even, Lord, in our sacrifice for our neighbors out of love, Lord, rather than out of selfishly grabbing onto our own protections, Lord. Help us to serve the world as you would, Lord. Help us to be Christ in this crazy world. And may you shine through everything that we do say and feel, Lord, how we treat people, how we speak to people, how we act, Lord. May the love and the grace of Jesus shine through us in this dark time. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.